turn in your Bibles, we're going to go back to the topic that we originally started here with, and that is the qualities of maturity. As we're looking at building our, our support team, we looked at the, the necessity of maturity, that the people you need on your team are mature ones, and so we're looking at what we need to do to be mature. And so we kind of got off for a little bit because we had some questions in the area of uh, peace, and then we looked at the peacemaker, so we spent some time on what is a peacemaker and how can we be a peacemaker, and uh, spent uh, about four weeks on that, and then we uh, took another detour off of that, looking at some of the things that came in with people who, uh, uh, praying for people who can't pray for themselves, and uh, also went into some other topics on that. We were on that for about four weeks, but now we're going to get back over here and finish this. I wrote in here seven qualities of maturity. I told you when we started this, we had seven qualities of maturity. Now, this is not that in order to be mature, you just need seven qualities. But if you get these seven qualities down, and these are working in your life, you will alter your life forever. You will make yourself more stable, more used of God. And uh, and a a conversation I was having with with someone recently, actually a couple of people on this this same topic, is... um, uh, you know, when, when we sometimes, when we get older, uh, how, many, how many, as you get older, you kind of think of, well, pretty soon I'll be on with Jesus. Uh, yeah. And we're looking forward to that time. But as we were, we were talking about, as I, I meditated on this a, a number of uh, weeks, months ago, about that, one of the things you may not understand and the, the importance of ministry and growth in your elder years is that I, I know looking back at me, I look back at what I knew when I was 20 compared to what I know now. And I'm able to do a lot more with what I know now than what I knew then. How many have grown some in the last 10 years? Well, see, if you've grown some, you know more how to apply the Word. The only way you can affect the life that is to come is in your life down here. The more you know and the more you grow, the more you can, you can affect that. You know that Moses, for all the reward we think he's going to get, did far more to help his cause in the end, in his latter third of his life, than in the entirety of his first two-thirds. If he had died at 80, he would have been pretty much nothing in the kingdom of God. But he stayed with it, and he kept on going. Don't, don't count out your latter years. You know more. You're more mature. You're able to handle more. God's able to use you more. It was years ago, I heard our brother Keith Moore, he was teaching on this. Uh, he was, uh, I, I guess he was still doing some, some things with fast cars and fast cycles. I think that's what, what spurred him on to that. And, and God had uh, passed, passed on to him. He says, look, you need to be careful with yourself. He says, you're a lot more useful now than you were before. <laughs> And God puts a lot of time in us to get us ready. And he put a whole lot of time in you to get you ready where you're at right now. Don't bail out on them. Stay with it. It's, in, it's important. You will affect your years more so. And there's other people in the Word of God who you can see they affected their years more in the latter part than in the beginning. If you even look at the ministry of Jesus, what is the most impactful time of the ministry of Jesus? The last tenth of his life, last three and a half years, that was the most impactful time of his, of his life. John, the Apostle John, 
what were the most impactful years of his life? Time when he was with Jesus? Or the latter part when he got the great revelations that he wrote down for us? Don't count out the latter part of your, of your life. It's important that you, that you stay until the job's up. But anyway, the seven qualities of maturity, we've looked at a few of them so far. First one we looked at was steadfast. And if you are wanting to go back on any of these, the podcast is available. They're up there on the podcast. They're up there on the Facebook videos. They're up there on the YouTube channel videos. There are all kinds of places out there. If you have not done podcasts yet and want to, every time I bring this up, we find some more people who haven't done it. We'll get you set up. Uh, we spent Wednesday night, uh, two weeks ago, uh, setting three people up after the service was over, <laughs> getting them on there. I, I love setting people up with, with podcasts because it's such a great way to hear the word. But the seven qualities of maturity. first one is steadfastness. The second one was patience. The third was calm. And the fourth was peace. And we looked at the difference between calm and peace. There's a difference between those. Not going to uh, spend all the time going back on over those because you can go up online, you can get them. And if you have any trouble finding them, just uh, send me a text message, send me an email, send me some kind of a message, let me know on your way out, and we'll, uh, we'll help you with that. But here in this one, we're taking a look at joyfulness. Now, not human, mental, or a flesh-level joy. We're not talking about that. We're talking about that born of the Spirit. Now, it may surprise you to know this, but many people who are Christians, Spirit-filled Christians cannot distinguish between flesh joyfulness and spirit joyfulness. We're going to spend some time taking a look at this because you've got to know the difference. You cannot accomplish what God wants you to do. Cannot accomplish what God wants you to do through joyfulness with a flesh level one. Especially when you think what is flesh is spirit. It will fail. And you will fail in a lot of things you're doing for God. It just won't happen. So we got to, we're going to spend a few weeks on this one so that you can know in uh, Romans 14:16 just looking at a few verses on on joy here first therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil here he was talking about the the aspects of foods and how some people get hung up on what kind of foods that you're eating you know Matt likes bacon and some of you folks you know uh, despise Matt because no not, not like that at all <laughs> I I mean we're a church that likes bacon I like bacon. I'm not quite as crazy about it as some people. Some people will put it on everything. I have. I still stand with the thing. There's some things bacon does not make better. <laughs> but uh, not everybody feels that way. Anyway, that's what he was talking about. That's his basis of it. He says, Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is what? Righteousness and peace and joy in the Spirit. Can you think of anything missing from that list? Can you think of some spiritual qualities that you think are important that are not on that list? <laughs> Love. I saw that one. Yeah. How about faith? How come the kingdom of God is in love? How come the kingdom of God is in faith? Why is the kingdom of God righteousness, peace, and joy? Don't think he made a mistake. For he who serves Christ in these things 
is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. So the things that we are to pursue, he says, let us pursue the things which make for peace. Now, we spent a good bit of time talking about peace, and we covered peace before this one for these, these particular reasons. Let us pursue the things which make for peace. Peace is not always everybody getting along. We spent quite a bit of time on peace and then spent some time on peacemaker. And you saw being a peacemaker didn't mean you always just did what everybody wanted. Didn't always just say the, the, the real nice things. Sometimes you had to be like uh, Paul did with Peter last week. And you got to say some, some pointed things to get to the, be the peacemaker. Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. Most Christians would be surprised at how much of their speech does not match up with this. Now, the Lord has dealt with me throughout my years in here in the things that I used to be able to get away with in the area of speaking about other people, I can't get away with anymore. In fact, I didn't think anything was wrong with it. And then I'll, sometimes, you know, God will, you're saying something, that, that's not edifying. That's not building up. That's not what you should be saying. Why are you speaking that way? And you have to correct it. Now, he didn't correct me before then. I guess I didn't know enough. But he corrects you as you go along. And uh, when he corrects you, it's time. Fix it. Get it right. If God has not been correcting you in this area, it's probably because you shut off listening. Because you will find that the more that you're with, walking with God, the more he will show you. That. Brother Higgins used to share with us stories of how, you know, he's in the, he's in the pastor, he's in the prophets, uh, operating the prophet ministry, and then God would speak to him about in this area. Uh, why are you doing that? Why are you talking about my servant this way? And he would have to correct it and make it right. Make sure that you do that. But here, the, the kingdom of God is righteousness. Well, if you don't have righteousness, you're not even in the kingdom. We've got to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can get in. You can't get in because you're good enough. You have to get in because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have to wear his righteousness. Our righteousness, not, no good at all. That's what's going to get in. So you don't even get in the kingdom without righteousness. That's why that's there first and foremost. Then he puts in here peace and joy. Now, I've given you this before because it's been taught to me. But the, uh, uh, it was taught to me as far as an example of flying an airplane. If you're flying an airplane, you look at the gauges. And certain gauges will tell you where you are. And in fact, you can get, as a, as a pilot, you can get registered or certified to be um, uh, instrument, instrument ready. In, instrument, uh, I forget the wording on it. But you're, you can fly the plane with the instruments, which means you could put black paint on the window and still fly the plane. Now, that takes some uh, ability. If you don't have that... Uh, if you don't have that uh, ability, if you haven't been tested for, for that, then there are certain weather conditions you can't fly in. And so if you want to be able to fly in all kinds of weather, you have to be uh, instrument graded. You have to be uh, registered that way. You have to get this way with your, with your walk. If you can get so tuned in to these two things, joy 
and peace, you will know that everything else on the plane is working. When your love walk goes bad, when your faith goes bad, when anything else you want to consider to be important in the body of Christ, whenever they go bad, your instrument panel will tell you. Your joy will be off and your peace will be off. This is why he can just narrow it down to these two things. Because you cannot operate in a false faith, in a wrong kind of faith, and not have your joy be affected. You cannot operate outside the love of God and not have your peace be affected. These things will be affected by these. So you can tell, oh, wait a minute, I'm not at the right altitude. I should be flying higher because I'm looking at the gauges and the gauges are telling me we're not where we're supposed to be. If you could focus on these three things, first off, get in on the righteousness of God. Just because you got in doesn't mean you stay there. The enemy is always trying to get you back on your own righteousness. Don't let him do it. And, well, no, he would never do that to me. When was the last time that you asked God for something in prayer and brought up your righteousness? (laughs) Well, God, I've been faithful. Well, God, I've been doing this. Haven't you seen? Yeah, you're trying to get in on your righteousness now. Knock it off. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's righteousness in the Holy Spirit. That's peace in the Holy Spirit. That's joy in the Holy Spirit. Not your flesh type ones, not any kind of substitute. You've got to make sure that you stay with that. Now, as we said, some might want to add a few other things like faith, but you would be hard-pressed to find things that peace and joy don't increase. You increase your peace, you increase your joy, you will find that you increase just about every other aspect of your Christian walk. If you increase your joy, you will find that it is easier for you to walk in love. If you increase your peace, you will find that it's easier to walk in faith. I mean, isn't it the tough part of walking in faith is because fear comes up? And fear disrupts what? Your peace. It's a whole lot easier to walk in faith if you're in peace. It's a whole lot easier to walk in faith if you're in joy. So, those are two important things. Romans 15, 13 reads this way. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. See, these things come from believing. It's a spiritual joy. It's a spiritual peace. That you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, God wants to fill you with these things, joy and peace, because He knows if you keep these things full and it's spiritual joy and spiritual peace, you will overcome in all areas. Let's go on over here to this, this particular story. This is one you're familiar with, but it certainly shows us what we need to go. And it's been a number of years since we've been on it. Acts chapter 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Just because you have somebody anointed like Paul doesn't mean everybody's going to follow. They still have to uh, uh, be open to God shedding the light. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed us, Paul and us 
and cried out, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to come out of her. And when he came out, and he came out that very hour. Now it says here that Paul, greatly annoyed. How many have ever been in that condition? How many can attest I have been greatly annoyed? Yeah. Just because you were greatly annoyed didn't mean you were doing what Paul did. Most people are greatly annoyed because of selfish reasons. Their flesh rises up. I didn't get what I wanted. Somebody didn't do something I wanted them to do. This didn't happen as fast as it should. All kinds of reasons, and we can get greatly annoyed at what's, at what's going on. Uh, you, it just in the natural, you can get greatly annoyed about things. I, I don't know, I was telling this story to my, my family the other day. Um, because I got greatly annoyed at Amazon. I'm sure nobody hears everything. I got greatly annoyed. Because I had to order something that we needed here in the church. And um, it, it was listed, one of those items, next day. Next day. Now, I had this before. I had this. I was ordering for something for somebody. And uh, it was said it was going to be here next day. A week later, it still wasn't here. I was greatly annoyed. Canceled the order and ordered it from someplace else. It took a couple of weeks. We finally got it. But on this one, it came on in and it came in. I, I, you look at the order part and it says right there, next day delivery. That's what it says. It says right there, next day. I put the order in. After I put the order in, it says delivery tomorrow. <laughs> the next day, I get a message. You know those little notifications that come up on your phone? I got a little notification that your item will be delivered tomorrow. Well, that's not the next day. That's the day after the next day. And I was greatly annoyed. Now, I cannot tell you that I was greatly annoyed in the spirit. I'm not even going to tell you that. My flesh was greatly annoyed. But I decided to do something about this one. And so uh, instead of calling Amazon, I did the little chat thing. And so I put a little thing in there about it. You know, I ordered this and you guys said this. And now here it is. It's going to be the next day. That's two days. That's not next day. Well, yeah, we're, we're sorry for the inconvenience. You know, it wasn't in our warehouse. Don't give me that. You knew where it was when I ordered it. <laughs> and so they came back on and said, we're going to give you a $5 credit. To your next order. I wrote back to him. I says, no, you're not. You're going to give me a $20 credit to my next order. <laughs> For all the times that you did this before, I want 20 bucks. That wasn't a whole lot. I probably could have pushed for a little more. I just had, but I was greatly annoyed. I don't usually do that. Some, how many times have Amazon promised you something's going to be delivered? Walmart promised something's going to be delivered. Whoever it is you ordered from, they promised they're going to be, and then it's not. And it, uh, and it wasn't. And um, so I said, all right, you're going you're gonna to give me 20 bucks. So they went and said, well, I'll have, to, I'll have to get back to you on that. And so, so you know, they went away for five minutes. And um, then they came on back on and said, okay, we'll do that. And here it is. It's coming this way. And here's the, the restrictions or whatever else is coming in. Do you know what happened the next day? 
I got another message. <laughs> the next day, your item has been delayed. <laughs> no, it was already delayed. <laughs> I was again greatly annoyed. But that wasn't anything spiritual. Don't conf- confuse spiritual annoyance with natural annoyance. We can get naturally annoyed on things just because you know, you're growing spiritually doesn't mean you can't naturally become annoyed. You can be. Don't equate it to something spiritual. Surely don't pass it off to anybody as anything spiritual. Because if you ever pass off your flesh as something spiritual, God stands back on that. You're going you're gonna to blame me for that? Don't be doing it. You know, it may just be your, your own flesh. It may just be your own person. You're just fed up with it. That's fine. That's, but don't put God on it. This is not that. Paul is greatly annoyed in his spirit. In his spirit, he knows this isn't right. This isn't good. And this has been going on for days. So I'm, I'm assuming that that annoyance was building or that annoyance was there in him. And then on this, this day... He finally got it in his spirit what to do. Now, how do you know he got it in his spirit? Well, it worked, didn't it? I mean, if you get aggravated in your flesh and you cast out the, the, the uh, evil spirit out of your kid, does it work? <laughs> I bind that spirit of disobedience. It doesn't always work, does it? But you see, this one worked. Greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit... I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out. So that would seem to be that God was behind this. So then God was more than likely behind the the annoyance that was there. Yeah, God can get annoyed. I know he especially gets annoyed when we pass off flesh things as spirit. He gets annoyed at that. I can show you that in places in the Bible where he got annoyed at people that. Was God annoyed with Pharaoh? I sure think he was. (laughs) Didn't Pharaoh say, I'm going to let him go and then change his mind? Would that get you annoyed? God wants his people free. Not only did he change his mind, he put more harshness on them. That probably annoyed God in the spirit. And then he sent out another plague. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Now, when the masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they had no concern about this girl. Was she hurt? Was she harmed? A lot of times when you see the spirit come out of a person, they, there's convulsions involved. They're thrashing about. They're down on the ground. Uh, I mean, there's visible things that go on. They apparently have no concern about this. They have no concern. One time we even saw that the demon spirit came out and they thought they were dead. Well, they're not concerned for this girl at all. They're only connected with this girl because of what they can do and what they can have and uh, what profit that they bring. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace and to the authorities. Now, they were the masters of this, this girl and this demon spirit that was on her. And apparently, 
she brought them a lot of money from this fortune telling, whatever it was that she was doing. How much money do you think she got? I mean, they, there was a lot of profit to be gained there. Say, let's just throw out a number. Let's say that they earned 100 bucks in a day. And of course, they earned more than that. How much of that 100 bucks do you think they gave to her? Probably just enough to get by, huh? Five bucks? They kept the rest of it. Because they're not concerned about their, her well-being. Many people that are around you are only around you because of what they can gain from you. Understand, that's the way that, that a lot of people operate. Now, you can get annoyed at that, or you can say, we're going to look to effect a change. Now, see, Paul changed that girl's life. The people that she brought profit to didn't help her out at all. Paul didn't look for any kind of a profit. He didn't look for any kind of a payment from this. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. No, they trouble you. They brought no trouble to this city at all. All they did was they troubled the guys who were making the money. But apparently these guys that made the money had a lot of influence. It could well be that they used their money to influence the city. And so the city would listen to these guys. They knew maybe someday we're going to need some favors. We don't know what that's like, people paying off politicians, I'm sure. But, you know, in these days, they had people that would pay off politicians so that they could get favors down the road. So they brought them to the magistrates. Now look what they say. These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Now think about this. What of the Jewish customs goes against Roman law. Roman law. Not local law, Roman law. Now first off, the Romans, these were a type of people, they came on in, they would just as soon as you just buckle to their authority without any war and any battle, and you just surrender and just say, we'll, we'll serve you and pay the taxes, and then you can do whatever you want. You can serve whatever gods you want. You can build whatever you want to build in your cities. You can go through whatever customs that you want to go through. They were fine. Later on, after this, this day, you'll see that some of the Caesars began to impose upon some of the cities uh, Roman emperor worship. But that's not so strong here in this, this part of the, of the time. They pretty much let you do whatever you wanted to do unless you got rebellious and started to uh, cause trouble in that area. Then they'd bring the army down and they'd crush it. But uh, up till then, they'd let you do whatever you want. So what Roman law would be violated? Now notice they don't list it. We can't relate to that, I know. We don't know people who just make accusations that things are being done that aren't lawful, right? Don't know what that's like at all. But that's what they did. They teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Well, what's... That doesn't even make any sense. You mean you can talk about your customs that you do, and it's unlawful for me to receive them? To hear them? To decide whether I want to do them or not? 
That doesn't make sense, does it? But nobody seems to question that. Ever seen it going on today where people make statements that you just scratch your head and say, how does anybody even think that's a thing? Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Now, who did they offend? The handful of people who profited from this operation. And now we got the entire city in an uproar because they were told lies about what happened and what they're doing. And they got into a mass uproar. You see God in that? Nope. We'll see that still today a lot of times with a whole mob of people get all upset over something. They don't even know the facts on it. They just were told a couple of lies and they got all upset on it. That's not God. God does not move that way. Guess who does? Well, let's so anyway. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Now, I don't know about you. If you were in a public place, would you want your clothes torn off? Now, it says they're beaten with rods. Most of us don't even know what that is. What happens when you are beaten with rods is that you are laid out uh, in a, generally in a seated position. It might be in a laying down position, but generally a seated position. And they would take rods and they would strike the bottoms of your feet hard. And they would do this quite a bit until when you got done, you couldn't walk. After that, then they put some stripes on them. That's whipping. So they commanded them to be beaten with rods, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Now, I don't know if both went on the same time. Are they getting beaten with rods and whipped at the same time, or did they finish beating them with rods and then whip them? But whatever it is, this is really unpleasant. Now, remember, Paul is here because God said, don't go here, and he had a dream, the Macedonian dream, and the man's calling them, calling over here, and so they come on over here, and this is their first place. So they're here because God said, this is where we want you, or at least we think that's what God said. We had the dream. We're over here. We're preaching the gospel, places that hadn't had the gospel. We cast out the demon spirit out of a girl who was held bondage by it. How many of you, if you were Paul, you were Silas, are feeling pretty good about ministry right now? And then this happens. When they laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, the inner prison, I'm pretty sure this is an area that doesn't get cleaned out a whole lot. It's pretty dirty. We know it's dark. Can you imagine being in a dirty, filthy place with open wounds, having been beaten with whips? Can you see how, how good that's going to be? These are not real great people that they're around. They're probably not saying the best of things. All because this very profitable fortune-telling business was knocked out. Now, this girl was obviously well-known in the area. Maybe a lot of these people in the town came to her to have their fortunes read. Maybe they stirred up the crowd by saying, you can't get your fortunes read anymore because of this guy. He casts out that spirit. I don't know if I'm a sensible thinking person. He casts out an evil spirit and so she can't do it anymore so she was doing it by the evil spirit. So you're telling me things that an evil spirit is telling me. 
And now I'm going to get mad at that because I can't have it anymore. Sometimes people just don't think things through. Now, she spoke things that are true, didn't she? These are servants of the Most High God. So why does Paul object? Why does he not want this? Well, you have to be careful who you align yourself with. This, this girl, this fortune teller, is trying to align herself with Paul, which means Paul would be, a, would be associated with all the fortune telling, the seances, whatever kind of spiritual stuff that she's been doing, and now Paul is going to be brought right into that. Oh, you're with that crowd. You're with the power that behind this girl. And he said, no, I am not. And he showed it by casting this out. But be careful who you align yourself with. So she did this for days. But we see that Paul, being greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit. Didn't speak to her. He spoke to the Spirit. Now again, they saw that the prophet was gone. They're mad because they don't have the money anymore. I wrote this in your outline for you. The motivation of most people who cause trouble, bring accusation or promote a premise is the profit they gain. They will gain some kind of profit from it. People that accuse you at the workplace, they're trying to gain profit maybe by getting your job or getting credit for something that you do. There's some kind of a selfish motivation. Until you find out the motivation of the person, you have not discovered the foundation of the truth of why they're doing it. And until they come to grips with the darkness they are in, light is an enemy. You get people that are like this, people that are this selfish, light is an enemy to them. They don't know that they're necessarily going against it, but they, they see light and fear comes on them. That's the enemy. I wrote this down. I wanted to make sure you got this. Darkness comes from self-seeking. Christian or non-Christian, it makes no difference. Darkness comes from self-seeking. If the enemy can get you as a Christian into seeking things that are good for you, good for your own self, satisfy your own things that, that aggravate you, that have agitated your, your, yourself. If he can get you into going after what is beneficial for you, what is helpful for you, he is leading you into darkness and he will bring darkness into your life. The devil knows this. Look at what he did with the very, very first sin, Adam and Eve. What did he do with them? He got them into looking at things selfishly. You've got paradise here in front of you and all you're focusing on is this one tree you can't have? That's selfish. They're ungrateful for all the things they have in the garden. They're ungrateful because I can't have this one tree. I want this one tree. That's what I want. Darkness comes from self-seeking. They began to seek after what they wanted. See, God knows in the day that you eat of it, you will be as God and know good and evil. Oh, well, we need to get what we want. Whenever you seek after what you want, whether you are born again or whether you're not, when you get into that self-seeking mode, you will walk into darkness. Unfortunately, many Christians never realize it. And they think what is selfish is just what I deserve, what I should have. But darkness comes from self-seeking. Brightness from seeking the good of others. 
Unsaved people who seek the good of others will see more than just darkness. There will be brightness that comes into their life. Brightness from seeking the good of others. That's brightness. Here's the last one. Light comes from pursuing the will of God. You want light, you've got to pursue the will of God. You want to just look for the good of others, things will be brighter for you. But you want light, you want true light, you've got to pursue the will of God. That's not new. I gave you that, uh, I think the last time I gave it to you was almost 10 years ago. Some of you might remember it. But darkness comes from self-seeking, brightness from seeking the good of others, and light from pursuing the will of God. You want to get light into your life, you've got to pursue the will of God. But I don't like what God wants me to do here. God wants me to give this up. God wants me to do this. God wants me to pursue. I don't want to do that. Well, then you'll turn off the light. You won't go after the light. Now, if we look over here again at verse 22. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. If you wonder where the power comes from that the masters use against Paul and Silas, it comes from the multitude. If the multitude does not rise up, these couple of people could not have turned the city this way. Now notice this too, because you will notice a great similarity in what is going on now, because this is not a new thing. This happened in this story, and it happens in the Old Testament. And when I point it out to you, your mind is going to go. You're going to think about some of these things. Notice the lack of proof that is needed. No one demands any proof that what they said was true. Well, show us some of the things that they said. Tell us some of these things that they said. Paul, did you say this? None of that goes on. Darkness needs nothing but accusations against light. Ever. Go in the Old Testament, go in the New Testament, go into history around the Bible. Darkness needs nothing but accusations against light. But the same standard is not used when darkness is accused. Now, you can use this truth. This is a biblical truth. Go all the way back into the Old Testament. You can go to every single book in the Old Testament. Look at the history in the New Testament. Every single one. When darkness accuses light, that's all we need is the accusation. When darkness gets accused. Ah, now we've got to prove it every which way. And then if you can't prove it, well, you can't prove that that happened. That is a sign. If you just see that, you should know this is darkness, this is light. That would be enough to tell you right there. When people go around here and they say, I'm this, this uh, phrase that they bring up, it's not new. They've just been using it of the uh, last couple of, what, decade or two or whatever it is. Well, the seriousness of the charge demands that we investigate. Uh, really? As serious as the charge. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's amazing how serious of the charge doesn't happen when it's darkness that's being accused. That's all, all good. We brought this up way back. Remember when Hillary was uh, being accused of all the things that she did against our country? I mean, it's, it, is, it was so... I, I know, I, I saw the documentation on it. The Clintons themselves were responsible for, while they were in office for 134 deaths. 
134 people who worked for them died mysterious deaths. How many of you people know anyone who died a mysterious death in which investigation went on to find out how they died? 134 people they know. That's not quite right. But you can go on all that. Remember, though, the FBI came on out with that big news conference? Well, we didn't discover... I mean, Hillary, she did all these things, but we didn't discover that she had any intent. Now, you tell me who that will hold up for. Police officers come knocking at a door. They got a drug person inside. And they go, they go on in. They're flushing the drugs down the, down the toilet. Down the to- but they still captured some. And they bring them to court. Well, we don't know that they had any intent to do anything wrong with this. Does that ever fly? If you, if the IRS um, comes after you and says, we want to audit you. And they decide that you messed up your taxes by a hundred bucks. Do you ever get, well, I don't know that you intended to fraud us. Did you ever get that? How is it? <laughs> because, you see, you can tell where the darkness is. You can, it is so easy to tell. I don't know how people get this confused. If no proof is needed, then the ones that are being, you, you can tell who's being accused and who's not. Because it is, there is never any proof needed for darkness. This is not our country I'm talking about. It may be happening here. But it's not just our country. You go to all the ones in the past. You go to the Greek Empire. You go into the Roman Empire. If you ever studied that, I studied them. I love history. I studied the Roman Empire. I studied the Greek Empire. I didn't study the Medes and the Persians too much. They didn't really, they didn't grab my attention. I didn't like them a whole lot. Babylonians, they didn't grab, they didn't grab my attention either. I didn't study them. But you can still see from just in the Bible, the same principle is there. Darkness, you can tell. It's, a, it's always the same thing. It's not anything new. It's not hard to, to see this stuff going on. But let's go on here in the verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas, this is the main thing we wanted to get to. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison was shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loose. Did you notice that it's not just Paul and Silas? The entire prison... Every door is open. Every chain is loosed. What kind of an earthquake only affects the chains and the doors? Most earthquakes I've seen affect walls. Walls come down. Roofs come down. Windows shatter. It doesn't happen this way. This is very supernatural. God is behind us. God is in it. Now, just stop reading right there. Let's just pretend that you never read the rest of this before. You know this is God because the earthquake has come, the, the chains have fallen off, the doors have just swung open. You know that's God. That's God. What does God want you to do? How many, how many would say leave? How many, if you were in that situation and the prison doors opened and the chains were off, how many of you would leave? This is God. I don't need anything to hit me over there. This is God. Obviously, it is God's will that we leave out the door. Yeah, I probably would have been in the same thinking. 
I'm thinking, I'm ready to leave. And you and me would have missed God. Because God was in the opening of the doors and God was in the shaking of the chains. But God was not in the leaving. Now, if it happened today in a prison, all the doors open and all the, all the chains that were holding people back all opened up. What would happen in that prison? I mean, come on, we've seen it. Power outages are going on. We have seen it. What happens? Prison riot. Guards are killed. Fires are started. Rush for the gate. This is what happens. We got, we know we got two spiritual people in the prison, but we don't know the condition of everybody else. It's probably not real good. Paul's bringing the gospel to this place. So everyone's chains are loosed. All the doors are open. And the keeper of the prison, now, now read this carefully. Read, watch what happens here. This is, this is amazing stuff. And the keeper of the prison, Awakening from sleep. Is he supposed to be asleep? What happens to guards who fall asleep? Bad things. They don't, they don't pay you to fall asleep. Somehow, he fell asleep. He's not supposed to. He's trained not to. But he falls asleep. The earthquake happens. The doors are open, shackles are taken off, and he still slept. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he's not seeing them opened, he's seeing them open. Which means he was asleep for the earthquake. He was asleep for the doors opening. You'll know this by the next verse, by the next part of the verse. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing that the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why does he suppose that the prisoners had fled? It's a real easy question. Because there's no noise. If you have a prison and all the doors are open and there's no noise and you just woke up, what are you thinking? I'm alone. Oh, man, I'm alone. They all got out. Every one of them got out. There's no riot going on. There's nothing going on that's, that's bad. Nobody started any fires. Nobody rushed out of their cells. Nobody's in the hallways. They must have all gone. And so he's going to fall on his sword because he knows they're going to kill me in a much, not so nice a way. So I may as well just end it now. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. All right. Now here's something else. It's not written here, but you can see it. How does Paul know he's going to bring himself harm? He's got to say something. He's got to be just speaking out what he's seen. Oh, they all left. Oh, my boss is going to kill me. I know, I'll just kill myself. Pulls the, they hear the sword come out. They hear all this. So then Paul calls out. He can't see any of this. Remember, it's the inner prison. It's nighttime. It's midnight. It's dark. 
But when Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are... How does he know they're all there? It's dark. Because he knows no one has left. How do you get a prison of heathens who have done evil, such evil that they're locked up? How do you get all those people when the Spirit of God moved upon the place and shook everyone's binds loose and opened up every door? How do you get them to stay in their cells and be quiet? My explanation for this is the presence of God is on this prison right now. And no one wants to move out of it. In fact, they'd rather stay in the presence that is there than walk out of the prison and into freedom. Something is going on in that prison that caused these heathens to stay behind. And the only thing we know that happened was Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They didn't have any church meeting, praying for them. Lydia, maybe she had a couple of people in the house. They praying for them. That's about it. But Paul and Silas, they don't flee. They don't get out of here. This situation that you see here, that they are in, this situation of having been beaten with rods, whipped, put into the inner prison, and shut up without any kind of a trial, accused of all kinds of wrongdoing, and they did nothing. That situation has not affected their joy and their peace. How is it that Paul and Silas could have this riot that they just went through, having their clothes torn off of them? They probably have not been given clothes back. They're probably in the prison naked. No one's taking care of their needs sitting in there in the prison, singing and praising God. And they don't leave. They stay right there. Somehow in the spirit, they knew, stay here. Verse 29, Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. There was no light before. He needed a light to come in. So no one can see anything. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Does this man ask this question if everyone left? No, he's already dead on the floor right now. This man asked this question because of what he saw. The shackles are off. The doors are open. And you stayed? Wow, this is, this is really weird. What must I do to be saved? So they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Doesn't Candy quote the message? He doesn't tell them, well, you know, whatever you believe is fine. <laughs> no, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. All right, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. 
and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. Now, again, this is in, not in there, but I think once I tell it to you, you can see this in there. What happened with the other prisoners? I can tell you exactly what happened with the other prisoners. They locked them back up, and they shut the doors. If they do not lock them back up and shut the doors, is this man free to go home? Bring Paul? And let the whole, the whole uh, family hear the message? Nope. He's got to be taking care of the problem down at the prison. But he's not down at the prison taking care of the problem, which means there's no problem at the prison. So all those prisoners stayed in there and got locked up again. This jailer does not receive salvation because of the multitude of people. He receives it because of the light of the truth. And that light cut through the darkness. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officer saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prisoner reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. He's probably excited. This is great. This is great news. They don't want to press charges. They don't want to hold you here. They want you to go. You're free to go. He's, he's probably thinking, I'm bringing some great news for Paul and Silas. They're going to be so excited to hear that. Uh, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now, do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now, darkness always desires to slander publicly and retract privately. That's darkness. Light is the other way along, around. If they said something in darkness, they want to bring it to light. That's what light does. Oh, I said this about you, but I, I, need to, we need, I just want to bring this out. I don't want there to be anybody who's thinking this. I said this about you. I said this, but it was wrong. See, that's light. That's God's light. Darkness? Uh-uh. We're just going to send them away. Uh, no, you're not. And so what they made them do is, uh, no, you can, they had to come over here to the prison. Because what they did, they did in front of everybody. Everybody saw us get beaten. Everybody saw us, our clothes torn off us. Um, no, those magistrates that were influenced by those guys with the demon girl, they need to come out here. And so they got the leaders of the city. They got the mayor the senator, the representative, the chief of police. I don't know who else, whatever other person you can get. I don't know what kind of uh, rulers they had there. They got them all out to come to the prison. That's all Paul said, come to the prison. You're going to take us out of the city. All right, we'll, we'll come in and we'll escort, escort you out. On their way out, well, we've got to make a stop. And they stop over at Lydia's house. She's one of the believers. And they have all the magistrates in tow. Which means they put their stamp of approval on Lydia. And then they went to a few other houses. Whoever, uh, whoever was believers. They're dragging these guys. These guys don't want to be here. But they know they'll be in trouble. See, they're selfishly motivated. If we don't do this, we can get in trouble with Rome. 
We don't want to do that. We have no explanation from Rome. We got carried away. Mob. Now, here's what we want to take a look at in the next week or two. This is, a, this is what we have to find out. How is it that their joy is not extinguished under such great pressure? How is it their peace is not extinguished under such great pressure? How is it that their righteousness is not extinguished under such great pressure? And I, I say that for this reason. If you were in that situation and all the city came down upon you because of what you did for God, how many of you are saying, but God, I'm a servant of you. How is this allowed to happen? How did you let this go on? But you see, if you're set in the area of righteousness, you don't do that. So how is it that their joy is not extinguished, their peace is not extinguished, their righteousness is not extinguished under such great pressure? The reason is because they know how to keep it fed in a trial. They know how to keep it fed in a trial. They know exactly where to go. They know how to extract it. And they, and uh, to do all this in a trial. To do it all in a trial. This is where most people fail. We try to build up enough joy, enough peace, enough of the Word, try to build up enough of the Word in us so that in a trial we can get through it. But if you can resupply in the trial your endurance greatly picks up. Now think of it from this way, because a lot of times the Word of God puts what we do as a war. We're in a spiritual warfare. In war, one of the main things you need for war is fuel. You've got to have fuel. You've got to have fuel for the factories. You've got to have fuel to make the tanks and the bombs and the planes and the ships and all that sort of stuff. You've got to have fuel to do that. You've got to have fuel to power the ships in the Navy, the planes in the sky, the tanks on the ground, whatever it is. You've got to have fuel for this. So one of the main things you need in a war is fuel. If you depend on fuel coming by boat, how set is that supply? If we were to engage in war right now and all of our fuel has to be brought over on a tanker, how hard is a tanker to take out? They don't move fast. They don't hide well. And what comes against them, all they got to do is just get one well-placed uh, bomb, ignite all that fuel, and that thing goes to the bottom. That's it. So what you have to be able to do is bypass the open ocean if you're going to get your fuel. How can you do it? Well, one of the ways is if we produce it here or pipelines that bring it in, something that's, that's uh, more easily to protect. This is what you need to do in your spiritual life. You can't be relying on things coming over the ocean in a boat to bring you your supply. You've got to have a pipeline directly to it. You've got to know how to get your spirit supplied from the Holy Spirit directly and in the midst of the battle. If you can be supplied in the midst of the battle with joy and with peace and with righteousness, you will not go down. You will not go down. 
You will be like Paul and Silas in the midst of the battle. They're singing. Praising God. Praying. That's where we need to get. How is it that I as a Christian can do this? How do I get that pipeline to come right in and supply me with what I need? So I don't have to go someplace else or have it come in over the oceans or have it come in in a way that's more vulnerable. How is it that I can do it? That's what we need to to set out here and uncover. Your level of joy does not depend on your circumstances, your possessions, your family, your friends, or your level of happiness. None of that has to do with your joy. We sometimes think it is, but that's a flesh joy. That's a natural joy. Your natural human joy is affected by circumstances, by possession, by family, by friends, and by your level of happiness. Natural human joy and happiness depends on what is going on around you. And if your supply is greater than the demand. When you get involved in a test or a trial and it is raining down upon you, how many of y'all know you can hold out for a little while? I mean, some of you can hold out for a couple of days. But then eventually, I'm sure no one here has ever said this, this phrase, but you may know people who have said this. I'm at my wit's end. Why? Because my supply of joy has been used up. I'm coming under it. I'm not winning anymore. Spiritual joy depends on what you know to resupply your joy in God. Spiritual joy depends on what you know to resupply your joy in God. There is a demand on you. There is something that is draining your supply. You need a way to keep it going. Remember he said in the beginning, he wants your joy to be full. We, these need to be full. It means if it can be full, it can be empty or it can be partially empty. How many of you, if we were to go outside and look at all the vehicles in here, how many of you would have a tank full of gas? Full to the brim. No. Well, why not? You can, you can make it that way. Why is it not full? Because it depends on when you filled up and how much you've driven since then. And you know that little gauge? We're a little more sensitive to it now. And it begins to move. I just filled this up yesterday. It's already down a quarter tank. Natural joy is limited. God's isn't. Natural joy is hard to supply in tough times. God's isn't. Natural joy can be overcome. God's cannot. If your joy and your peace gauges are low, your faith is flying a whole lot lower than you may think it is. But if your peace and your joy gauges are high, you will respond to circumstances in a much more mature and unselfish way. 
Remember, you look at, look at Paul here, but Paul could have his eyes on the trouble in his life. He had the Judaizers, he had the false teachers, he had the people that betrayed him, he had the accusers, he had those who opposed oppose his ministry, both Gentile and Jew. He had beatings, he had journeys, he had shipwrecks, he had weariness, he had church hardships, and he had issues, church issues. All these things came against Paul. He lists them in one spot. But instead he focused on his calling, being counted worthy, the fruit of his labors, those under him, the revelations overcoming the enemy, being content in God and the knowledge of what's ahead. That's what gave him. Moses, he could have focused on the difficulties with the people, their lack of maturity, lack of faith, even the ungratefulness that was there. He could have been focusing on being stuck in the wilderness because of them for 40 years. Wandering, wars, nations that wanted to destroy them. Instead, he found fulfillment in his relationship with God, how God worked through him the greatness of God's power that he even got to be a part of it. That he constantly got to see God's power on demonstration. And he also saw some of the people who greatly developed their faith and maturity and who were a help to him. There were a lot more people than three or four who helped him. Now next week we're going to take a look at how do we live in the spirit-based joy? How do we live in spirit-based peace? How do we live in these, these things and keep this so that it's constantly fed in a trial so I don't hit my wit's end? I don't feel like I can't hang on anymore. Because when I look at Paul and Silas here in the prison, do you get any indication that they are that close from failing? I see people that are flourishing. And I know I myself have not gone through what they went through in that one day. And they're flourishing. It's not even testing them. And it's not just Paul. It's Silas. Silas is a good guy. He hasn't been walking these things as, as long as, as Paul. But they're both in there flourishing. If they're flourishing, if Moses can flourish, if Jesus could flourish, then there's principles we could learn so that we can flourish. And in the midst of these tests and these trials... I'm not barely hanging on. I'm able to overcome. And I look at the devil and say, that's the best you got? You're going to need a whole lot more than that. Take me down. You better work on your game. I worked on mine. What you got isn't enough to take me down. So you're not afraid of him anymore. That's where we need to be. So that's what we're going to take a look at here in the next uh, next week, two weeks, whatever time frame it ends up being. Would you all stand up with me? Today is our communion Sunday. And we surely see that Jesus was one who faced a great test and trial. He came through. He was able to tap into that source and that supply. And give him strength where other people would not have. Many others would have failed because of the beating that he took. They would have maybe strayed from the purpose, but he did not. He stayed with it. And that's an example that we can follow. Our ushers coming forward. Distribute the, the elements to you.
But on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus, he took the cup and he took the bread as emblems of things that were to remind us of what is to come, of what is going on. Before supper, he took the bread and he broke it. And this represents my body, which is broken for you. He hadn't been broken yet, but he's already seen what's going to happen. He is all ready. He has his levels of peace, levels of joy, righteousness, are right where they need to be. He's going to fly over the test of power. Thank God he did. But he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We need to remember that on his body was put our sickness, our disease. He bore it in his body so that we don't have to. He knew we would forget. He knew we would forget one side or the other. So he made this into two parts. Because Jesus came for both things. He came to save you and he came to heal you. Don't lose sight of what he has done. Because everybody has been served. together and remember the body of Jesus Christ. After supper, he took the cup. This represents the blood of the new covenant. No longer just covering up sin. Now this time, sin is obliterated paid for or washed clean. When God looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. We wear his righteousness. Let's drink together in the Glory to God. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to this earth to live life victoriously go to the cross and pay for a sin problem that we could not take care of. He redeemed us. Brought us back. We're ever grateful for Help us to learn how to let righteousness, joy, and peace reign in our life. To be even supplied in the midst of a trial we don't ever buckle down. Give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we go,